Good morning. We're in a series. We're walking through Paul's letters to the Philippians, letter to the Philippians. And as we've been pointing out, this letter has the theme of joy running through it when we see Paul's conditions. And as we've pointed out, we're surprised by this joy. He's imprisoned, cut off from those he cares about. They're sending gifts to him, which he is appreciative of. And yet, he is sitting alone while the churches he is plant he has planted under are under attack from those attempting to alienate believers from him. In spite of this, as he sits, uh, joy is the theme of the letter. He writes, the reason for this joy we've looked at a few things: the joy of partnership with them. They have been contributors to his ministry because they believe in him. It was a personal thing, as we talked about. Their giving to him was not mandated by tithe, it was given out of the heart. And Paul received it as such, was so grateful for their partnership with him. The joy of service that even in spite of, or really because of his adversity, the gospel was being proclaimed to the Praetorian Guard, the people in the community had more boldness, they were talking about Jesus because Paul's doing it, and and so it kind of took a taboo off of, or a sense of fear, and they became bold, that we also find the joy of faith. Look what it says in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 15. It's in your worship folder, if you want to follow along. Paul writes, Some indeed, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. We talk about those words. Envy is harsh zeal. Harsh zeal, somebody who is zealous. So these individuals preaching, they really are devout. They mean what they say. They're talking about things and they're animated and they're talking about the Bible. Rivalry, though, has the sense of, well, it's what we've been through in the, in the political season. Rivalry, in the sense, is a campaigning, factioning spirit. So what's happening, individuals are being zealous, but they are doing so in order to pull Paul's devotees away from him and to themselves. The same way if somebody is in a debate, they are trying to pull Democrats away from Clinton or Republicans away from Trump. What's happening in this context, individuals, teachers are trying to pull Paul's adherents away from him to themselves. And so, that's why they're zealous, but they're zealous in order to have more people sitting in their house church. So he says, Paul says, indeed, some, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me and my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? 
news. I can't tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I think what's happening, he's sitting in prison, and Paul is being dragged through the mud. Some are taking shots at him while he's, he is in prison. Verbal shots probably maybe seem a little bit like if you've ever seen a, you ever been to the zoo, and there's a, a lion or a tiger behind the cage. You know, here, kitty, kitty. You know, and so you're kind of taunting the lion because it's in a cage. And so there's individuals who are taking out their impatience on Paul, and they are kind of taunting him and um, saying, ah, he's not that much. And they are, again, as we talked out, they're kind of stealing his, sparking, his parking place. In front of different churches, they are moving in and trying to draw away Paul's adherence after themselves. Not only are they taking shots, but they are probably, I think, boasting about how their verbal punches are landing. His detractors are saying probably that Paul is incensed, that they are stealing his thunder, that he is not rejoicing. And with that, Paul takes this on and listen to what he says. He kind of is walking a path here because at one level, they can't hurt the gospel. The gospel stands on its own. He doesn't need to defend it. But on another level, there is some issue when somebody preaches Christ out of selfishness rather than there. And so listen to what he says. Uh, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, from others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I think there might be a little heat in this. Yes, and I will rejoice. Not heat, and it's not defending himself, but just so that they know, you can take pot shots at me, but you cannot defeat the gospel. And that's what he wants to point out. See, what they think that he, Paul may well have reacted, and maybe they heard, well, yeah, we, we saw somebody, somebody said that they saw Paul, and, and they told him about what's happening in Philippi, and Paul reacted. They feel that his reaction is rooted in a desire for power. The reason they think that, because that's their motivation. And they can't imagine somebody who doesn't, try to pull people away in order they might be more powerful. So they assume the reason why Paul's reacting, he wants a bigger church. He wants a bigger budget. He wants more influence, wants more power. That's not Paul's concern at all. They're projecting that onto him. Paul's concerns are more shepherdly than theirs. Paul's concerned about the sheep. You know why? Because these individuals who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition are wolves. And again, a wolf we talked about this. Wolves don't hate sheep. They just need to eat them. <laughs> Nothing personal. <laughs> Come here. 
I just am kind of hungry and I can't get full on what Jesus does for me, so I need to get full on what I do for him. So I need to tell you things, and I need to see you go, ooh, because that's, okay, say that again. Do that ooh thing again. Come on, do the ooh thing. Oh, ooh, that felt wonderful. Just let one, you know, and so they're, you know what that's called? Consuming the flock. Shepherds exist for the benefit of sheep. When sheep are put in a place where they need to feed the appetite for power for the shepherd, that's an issue. What Paul ends up saying, that's, that's not the right motive. And Paul talks about motives elsewhere. But what he's saying in this, while there might be an issue with these individuals, Paul is not losing his head because what he will believe, you can't get in the way of the gospel. I don't care about your motive because the gospel stands on its own. Um, Paul rejoices that even though they're self-serving, the gospel is not damaged. You know what Paul sees? And this is the element, this is central to faith. Are they doing things that are questionable? Yeah, you know what Paul understands? God's good trumps their bad. I'm not using trumps for that specific reason. No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But I don't care who does what. God's good trumps everyone's bad. Everyone's bad. Who is doing bad things? Does that bad get in the way of God's good? You know, Joseph, and we talked about this before, boy, his brothers did some awful things to him. Just terrible. Threw him in a pit, and, and they were going to leave him there to die, and then they sold him to foreigners and all these things. They go through, and you know the story of Joseph. Here's what Joseph ends up saying. Uh, when at the end, when they are confronted by him, when they understand who he is, and this is what Joseph says, and he's going to talk about, and we've looked at this before, good. God's good trumps their bad. Is that really so? It really does depend on how you define good, doesn't it? Good's a very relative term. You know, what does good mean? Well, what does good mean to Mike McCarthy? That Aaron Rodgers will be Aaron Rodgers again today, and he'll save the day again. Some of us don't like Aaron Rodgers for that reason. He throws those Hail Marys, and people just, just like angels, just got, and you know, they just blitz, and then they come down with it, and how the heck does he do it? And he's probably going to play against Tom Brady and beat him, and... But, okay, maybe I'm leaking a little bit, maybe projecting a little bit of my own... Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. That's what he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. They threw him in a pit. God meant it for good? Did God allow that? Did he cause it? Was it God's will that Joseph go in a pit? Be mistreated by his brothers? God's will? Tricky question, though, isn't it? Some of you are going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Can we say, did God's good trump their bad? Absolutely. Absolutely, God's good. And so what Joseph ends up saying, 
meant it for good to bring about what many people sh that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so what good means in Joseph's parlance, when the suffering of one leads to the benefit of many, when the suffering of one leads to the benefit of many, God calls that good. Again, we've talked about this before. That's why we call that Friday Good Friday. The suffering of one, the benefit of many. Paul languishing in a prison, knowing that his suffering will lead to many coming to Christ. And that's why they know these individuals trash-talking can't hurt the gospel. You can't hurt it. You can stamp on it, try to crush it, try to beat it. When I was in China, heard about the different things being done to try to crush the church over the period when the communist state came into power and when they opened the doors some 30 or 40 years later and tried to assess the degree of the gospel penetrating the culture, it had become in that time the most populous Christian nation on the planet. You can't crush the gospel. You try to crush it, and it just expands. Individuals were stamped down. Some terrible things happened. Terrible things happened. But the gospel kept moving. You can't stop it. Can't stop it. And trying to squish it only moves it further. That's what Paul understands. Um, when the suffering of one causes the deliverance of many, God calls that good. And what Paul is saying here, as he's in prison, the gospel spreads because of adversity, not in spite of it. That is what he's saying. It's not just in spite of adversity the gospel is expanding. It's because of it. And that's, he rejoices in that. This with his faith. Um, faith, when we look at it, and we're going to look at that just briefly now as we think of what's faith? I think a working definition, faith is trust in God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. Faith is trust in God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. You look out and think that bad is winning. Faith means to trust that God's good will trump the bad that seems to be willing, winning. And that's, that's what faith is, trusting God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. Christian faith is trusting God when there are clear reasons not to trust. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting God vertically even when horizontally things don't look all that good. How do things look horizontally for you? Financially, spiritually, how do things look? Socially, educationally, vocationally. When things don't look that good, it seems like uh, I think I'm on a bad road. I'm on a bad road, and some of us feel that way. We are on a crash course with bad. We look at the way our life is now. And we multiply that by five years. You ever do this? Feel the pain that you're in right now? Move it ahead five years. Move it ahead ten. Move it ahead fifteen. What we end up doing, take today's bad and multiply it by five, by ten, by fifteen, and say, I'm done. I am on a crash course with bad. And you know what Paul would say? Well, you know what the Bible would indicate? No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. 
You are not on a crash course with bad. Because God's good always trumps bad. You are on a crash course with good. No one can take it away. No one can take it away. And our, then our challenge is, oh, Mike, if I, if I believe that, that is the challenge, isn't it? You know what, you know what faith means? <coughs> Believing it. Faith difficult? When things horizontally look one way and clinging, yeah, faith is tough. How does God build faith? What is the, let's, we're going to look at a couple things, the fruit of faith. So what is the evidence of faith? Now we'll talk about the root of it, how it happens. Let's talk about the fruit of faith. Uh, Romans, we'll go to that in order to understand faith. Romans 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Uh, Christian faith reflects itself in two ways. Christian faith rejoices in future certainty, and Christian faith rejoices in present uncertainty. I'm going to say that again. Christian faith rejoices in two things. It rejoices in future certainty. It rejoices in what will happen then. But it also rejoices in present uncertainty. It also rejoices in what is happening now. But Christian faith rejoices in future certainty. Again, Paul 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have just been justified by faith, justified means declared righteous. You've been credited with having cleared the bar. We've talked about this before. I want you to picture a high jump. High jump. Set really high. Really Hi. So some of us think, well, as long as I don't you know, smoke, drink, or chew, a goalie with girls who do, you know, you know the way. Um, but we we kind of make it so that the bar is kind of, you know, if you're kind of a, a good person, you clear the bar. But what Jesus did when he came up, you know, you ever see the way they do this with the high jump? They have a little a little thing with the limit. So they, when Jesus came up, he went, and that bar went wah, 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 wah. And finally, there was just, holy smokes. <laughs> There's no chance because what he said, um, you've never murdered anybody. You ever been angry? If you're angry, you've committed murder. Well, there it goes. <laughs> yeah. So just because I've never cussed anybody out or I tend to be gentle, but I have been angry. Uh, but at least I've never cheated on my wife. Have you looked around? Have you noticed? That's committing adultery in your heart. So get angry, look around. And so what ends up happening, um, and then people, we, we tend to think that, well, I can clear it. No, no, you can't. The only one who ever did, Jesus. And he went up and he just went, huh? you know, he's just like Superman. The thing, I go, well, like Matrix, whatever the thing. He just kind of makes it over. He's the only one that cleared the bar by doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. And you and I are still, well, Jesus is over the other side, right? He's already cleared the bar, right? And we are over here. And so you know what Jesus said? Through faith, we can be credited with his performance. So his 
clearing the bar becomes our clearing the bar. That's what it talks about. Remember it talks about in Christ? In Christ? Well, let's think about with the bar. You know, we're here, and we haven't cleared it yet. We get angry. We have issues. Jesus is over there. What happens if we're in Christ? Well, this seems kind of weird, but I'm going to, I guess I'm just going to kind of sneak underneath the bar. <laughs> you know, you ever do that with you? You know, you're trying to get from point A to point B, and you say, I hope nobody's looking. Okay, now I'm on this side. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. So, you know what this means? The bar is behind me. The bar is behind me. Do I have to clear the bar now? If if I think that the bar is in front of me, what, what did I do? I got turned around. <laughs> Mike, turn around. You're in Jesus. Jesus already cleared the bar. Therefore, you need, because Jesus isn't pointing in this direction, Mike. You're looking at the wrong side of Jesus. Jesus is looking in this direction. Okay. Well, the bar is behind me. Does this mean that God's acceptance is a foregone conclusion rather than a pending decision? It, is, is that what it means? If Jesus already cleared the bar and God already accepted him and I'm in Christ, is my acceptance then a foregone conclusion? Is God waiting to see if you'll be able to deal with that anger issue before he's going to try to figure out whether to justify you or not? Is he waiting? Is it a pending decision? It all depends if you believe you're in Christ or not. Are you in Christ? Jesus came so that you could be. And if you're in him, where is the bar? If you're in him, where's the bar? Maybe it's time that you started to believe it. The bar's behind you. The bar's behind you. If God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, I do this and I don't do that and I don't get mad and I never would think of committing adultery. I, 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 I. What does that say about who you're trusting in? What's the answer? Because he, because he, because he never committed adultery. He never got angry. I get to be in because he never did those things. Ooh, is that true? Is that true? That's true. And you know what God wants you to do? Put your faith in it. When is it difficult to believe that? When we do things that aren't clearing the bar type of things. <laughs> but Christian faith believes that um, we're eternally secure if our faith is in Christ. Look what Paul, Paul, this is what Paul's belief is. He sat in letters. Look what it says in verse 21 of Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I can't tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know what Paul believed? And I think it's, I think it's true. Seconds after I breathe my last, I'm not looking forward to breathing my last fighting for breath, whatever it will mean for me to die. No individuals who are preparing to die. Within seconds of dying, what we will experience, we're going to be with him. Again, we talk about this. 
Uh, Jay talked about it at a funeral, didn't you, Jay? About what it would feel like to uh, to be there. And it'd be like, and we talked about the way a fish feels when it hits the water. Fish is flopping around on the shore. And then you put that fish in the water, and what does it do? And you ask that fish, how do you feel? Joy wouldn't work. Happy? Joy, you know what the fish feels? Alive. This is what I was created for. Within seconds of our death, that's what we're going to experience. This is what I've waited for. This is what I didn't find in marriage. This is what I didn't find in citizenship. This is what I didn't find. This is what I've always wanted. What is it? It's, it's to be in a place I belong. To be in a place I never want to leave. I don't have to leave. That's what we're going to seconds after we die. Paul, that's what Paul believed. Uh, he rejoiced in the future certainty. He also rejoiced in the present uncertainty. Uh, and again, in Philippians, it says, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul knew that his suffering would lead to their becoming more confident in their faith, hope, and love. Christian faith rejoices not only in future certainty. That's, that's kind of fun to think about. Jay, again, I talked about Jay at a funeral. He brought that. I think I told that he ended up introducing that at a funeral. For, it was a nephew, wasn't it, Jay? Um, Christian faith rejoices also, though, in present uncertainty. Look what Paul says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our, oh, gee, holy smokes. Ah, boy. Mm-hmm. Do I really want to say this? We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's a path here, the path of righteousness. It's a path that does lead to righteousness. On the near side of this path is sufferings. On the far side is Christian maturity. I guess you know what this means, and I'm not going to jump up and down. Christian maturity cannot exist apart from sufferings. If you have everything you want, and if you don't have things you don't want, you cannot mature as a Christian. Is that what... You think that's pushing this text too far? Am I pushing it too far? says that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance is the ability to remain in a place you'd rather not be. 
You'd like to be out of a relationship that you don't want to be in, but you're going to remain in it. You're in a job you might not like. Again, I'm not saying don't, but just what this is, that's what endurance is. It's remaining in a place that you would rather not be. Endurance is not fun, because if you could, you'd get out. Suffering means that you have to stay there. So it says, suffering produces endurance. Endurance is what happens is when resources dry up and plans fail. When I get angry about being in something and I'm still in it tomorrow. And I get angry that day, but eventually I learn to be less reactive. We become used to things in a way. That's not good, is it, to get used to being in a place that we don't want to be? Is that bad? To get, you know what, it sends up endurance has the sense of that's what he does. He puts us in a place that we get used to something, we stop fighting against it. And what does that do? Endurance produces character. You know what character is? It's provenness. It's what happens if I doubt this ring is gold. Say I doubt this ring is gold, I introduce it into a solution that determines whether it's gold or not. And Provenness is what happens when the ring comes out of the solution and it indicates that it's real. That's what character is. It's something that's been tested and approved, certified as real. So what it indicates is that within suffering, suffering produces an ability to remain, an ability to remain in a place that is evidence that Faith is real. Again, this is not something to to be, oh, wonderful. (laughs) That's great. This is not great news, but it is the truth. Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces provenness. The sense that there's something real. And I can look around and see faces. You've been through things, and you kept on walking, and it was hard to walk through those things. And you got on the far side, and you look back, and you say, I never want to go through that again, but I'm kind of glad I endured it. Do you understand what I mean by that? You would not go through that thing again. I have things in my life I would never, never want to walk through again but I can look back and I, and I can see I'm, I get through it. Do you, understand, do you understand that? Let me understand that, don't you? There's a sense of depth of something real that comes when we've been through something difficult and, well, look at you. Those things that you've been through that you said, I cannot continue to walk with God and go through this thing. Look at yourself. You're still in the game, aren't you? You never thought you'd make it through that thing. Remember that thing? Remember that time? You said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I need to, I need to, do you remember that? Look at you. You're still, you're still doing it. And there's a sense of staying in it. That's, there's a, you understand there's a, a certainty in that. The faith is not just flitty, not fickle. There's something to it. There's depth to it. Substance. That's what it means. Character produces hope. Hope is Christian certainty. It's a deep assurance. 
that roots one deep when winds are blowing. What we know is a tree has to drive roots down when it's in a windy place. Some of these trees around here, it gets very windy. Some of these trees are going to develop deep roots. The thing with the dumpy they put in for the Eagle Scout project, that tree is putting down deep roots. You know, and it's really going to be interesting, that tree, by the way, because there was a, um, it was a bunch of concrete. And I'll probably, I'll try to remember this afterwards anyway. So what the deal is with this tree, it's going to be challenged because we tried to bust out the concrete and somebody took a whole barrel, whole barrel, and put the roots of the, the, uh, the lighthouse out there and, and put it down into the, the barrel of concrete and it was almost impossible to get out. What that tree is going to have to do, and I'll try to remember this, I'm going to talk about roots, it's going to have to drive its roots down. And it's going to have to maybe move through part of the concrete in order to drive its root deep enough to be able to stand. It gets windy out there. And if it didn't get as windy, it would need to drive roots. But because it's windy, it needs to drive. That's what a tree does. Um, suffering deepens faith, hope, and love. Um, Jesus told a parable about somebody who went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Well, geez, what's happening in here? Imagine that tree hitting the concrete. What happens to a plant, I guess? Let's imagine that's a plant, and it tries to drive a root down, and it can't, and it's, it can't get a lot of moisture, right? It can't get what it needs, so what happens with a plant, it, it would go out of the ground immediately to try to find nutrients, right? It can't get it this way, so it goes up this way, and, and the problem is, without a deep root, what happens to this plant? It gets scorched. It doesn't have the deep root necessary to survive the sun, so it can't live on above-the-ground things. I think that there is an illustration, and I think Jesus might have alluded to it. He says in John 5, I do not receive glory from men. What that literally means, I don't seize praise from men. It's not that Jesus said, oh, no, no, it wasn't anything. I just raised him from the dead. <laughs> it's nothing. I don't think it's, it's that he doesn't seize praise from men in order to feel, okay, I'm in a good place because you smiled. I'm in a good place because you, and what ends it? That's what he says. I don't seize glory from men. I don't navigate based on people's smiles. I think that's what he's saying. Look what he says. But in the Pharisees, I know you that you don't have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I want you to imagine what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees had their antenna out looking for smiles, feeding off of the smiles, seizing. And you know what Jesus said? If you've got this, you don't have this. 
You don't have a deep root. Why did they have to live for the smile? Because their root couldn't go down through, it couldn't go down deep. Question, question. What will God do to drive your root deep into the love of God? What will he do? You know what I'm going to suggest? You might not have all the smiles you want to see above ground. It might be relational things that are hard for you. Places that you'd like to see smiles, but they're not there. You don't have the life that you want to have. You don't see the things you want to see above ground. And you know what you end up having to do? What do you have to do? You have to drive the root deep. And you have to try to hold on to him to compensate for what you don't have above ground. Is that the way deep roots are formed? I think that's what it says, isn't it? Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance character. Character hope. You thought you were doing something wrong because above ground you're not seeing what you need to see? Could it be that God's at work in your life putting your root deep into his love? I think that's how it works. Um, how do we deal with the resentment? Again, Paul was able to experience people trash-talking, and he was able to rejoice. When people do things to us that gets in our way, we resent them. Or we feel remorseful. I should have, shouldn't have done that. And we deal with remorse and resentment. How do you reach into your heart and pull out joy? How the heck do you do that? I think a bunch of us know what it's like to reach into our heart and pull up a bunch of a steaming pile of, not joy. <laughs> um, what he says, hope doesn't, does not, in Romans 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God for our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It talks about the character of God's love, what he did and when he did it. What he did, he sent his son in order to give us a way to have eternal existence as the song, Jesse, I love the lyrics. It's heaven came down so that we could be part of it. God brought heaven down to us so that it, we could, yeah, I like that, I like that image. But it's not just what he did, but when he did it. When did Jesus die for you? What were the things in this text that characterized us when God sent his son to die for us, well, look what it says. Um, while we were still weak, weak, weak means powerless. If I am powerless, I, I can't lift this thing. Powerless means I can't do what I want to do. That's what powerlessness means, right? 
in a spiritual perspective, what does powerlessness mean? That there's things that God wants you to do and you can't do them. And there's things that he doesn't want you to do and you do those. When you were powerless, God sent his son to die for you, right? When you were a sinner, God sent his son to die for you. When you were actively violating these things, when you were ungodly and when you were enemies, powerless sinners, ungodly and enemies. This is what we were like when God sent his son to die for us, when he dispatched his love to connect with us. Now, here's the question. If God dispatched his love for us while we were ungodly, weak, sinners, will he rescind his love when we sin? If he sent his love when we were doing it, will he pull it back if we have issues? It doesn't make sense, does it? Here's the question. What if you believed it? You know what would happen? I bet you. When you are in a difficult place, if we are in a difficult place and we know we're loved in spite of I don't have a good attitude, you know what I bet you we would do? We would deal with less remorse and resentment. We would be less condemning of ourselves. Look at you. You know what the way that works in your head, don't you? Look at you. Or some of us take our contempt outwards. Look at you. We deal with remorse and resentment because we feel disconnected. We don't really believe that God's good trumps everyone's bad. You know what the deal is? This is true. Your father loves you. But he is not a sugar daddy God. He is not. He will not protect you from things that are hard. He will not. Don't let anybody sell you that. You will go through hard things. But he will be there. And those things will produce endurance, character, hope substance. It'll drive your faith deep. Your roots will go deep into his love and you'll be like that tree. God is at work in your life because he loves you. In order for the Spirit to root our love, to root our faith into the love of God, he moves us into the wilderness and the Spirit, remember what Jesus happened with Jesus. He went through the water. You're my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That must have felt good. Really. Where did he go right after that? The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You know what the problem is? We have water experiences where we feel really close. You've, you've had those, right? Essentially, maybe a song or doing something or when this event happened in your life and it was just like... Heaven opened up, and it was just wonderful. You know, the only problem with water experiences is that you can't build the apartment right on the bank of that place. And just kind of, I'm going to look at that again. Run the film on that wonderful experience. Because God leads us from water into wilderness, and it happens like right now. 
I, mean, I just was in the rearview mirror. There's water, but now I'm moving into wilderness. And that's what ends up happening, and that becomes confusing for us. Why does God move us into the wilderness? Because deep faith can't be built on the bank of the water. Can't be. Can't be. God hasn't moved you from that water experience because he doesn't love you. He's moved you because he does. Prosperity is a lousy teacher. You can't drive root deep if you're comfortable. It can't happen. But it's not because he doesn't love you because he does. There is this... Um, so Christian faith rejoices both in future certainty and present uncertainty. A uh, little story, quick, and then we'll close. A gentleman was a Christian, took seriously ill, and he felt very troubled because he felt like he had little love for God. He just, I don't, he was about to die, and he didn't feel like he loved God a lot. And that scared him. Anyways, he told a friend about it, and this is how his friend responded. When I go home from here, his friend said, I expect to take my baby on my knee. I'm going to look into her eyes. I'm going to listen to her gurgling. Tired as I am, her presence will rest me. I love that child with unutterable tenderness, he told this guy. But she loves me little. He talks about the infant. My heart were breaking. It wouldn't disturb her sleep. My body were racked with pain. It wouldn't, it wouldn't interrupt her play. If I were dead, she would forget me in a few days. Because Besides this, she has never brought me a penny, but was a constant expense to me. said, I am not rich, but there is not money enough in the world to buy my baby. How is it? Does she love me, or do I love her? Do I withhold my love until I know she loves me? Am I waiting for her to do something worthy of my love before extending it? Illustration of the love of God caused the tears to roll down the sick man's face. Worship team, come on up. Here's what, here's what the guy said. Oh, I see. It's not my love for God, but God's love for me that I should be thinking about. And now I do love him more than I have ever loved him before. Dear Father, we just want to say thank you, um, and we want to thank you for what you've given us and why you've given it to us, and we ask that in your way and in your time, you deepen our faith and our capacity to hold on to and remain in this life with what you've given us. We ask that we're able to take this out with us today and also be able to reflect it to the ones we love and to the ones you've brought into our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.